fire up front here has got a few bad bearings in it and it uh, is rattling right along. So that's not on tonight, so I'll try my best to speak up. And you all listen up. All right, we are in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. And we're going to be finishing off verse 13 tonight, Lord willing. So let's read 1 Timothy 1.13. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time here this evening. Lord, for your word that you've given to us, Lord. For the responsibility that it is for us to learn and to learn it, Lord, and to be led by your Holy Spirit in that. Lord, we pray tonight that you would help us all to grow closer to you as we look through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> so last week we had um, we had gone through here and looked at these three things that the Apostle Paul had outlined about characteristics of himself prior to his conversion, how he was a blasphemer and how that being a blasphemer didn't mean that he was someone who was openly critical of God, uh, taking his name in, in vain, actively uh, just verbally and, and orally abusing the Lord to, to the, the people around him, but in, his, in the way of <clears throat> denying Jesus being the Christ. Being a persecutor, traveling around, seeking to destroy Christianity in the name of his religion that he was following, and being injurious, and how that um, didn't, I mean, it was, per, it was partially physical in action, but, I mean, seeking out diligently and going after people, being someone zealous of his persecution is how we had, I, I believe, uh, derived that to be. Now we come to the point of that uh, I guess the punctuation here is a full colon in the English text and a conjunction but right is describing his life before his conversion but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief so prior to his conversion Paul was resisting the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah right this is not a, a a hidden thing. God has been proclaiming that the Messiah would come all throughout the Old Testament. The uh, There's a Latin phrase, I don't know Latin, we won't go there, but uh, the first um, declaration of that being in Genesis chapter 3, where the, uh, let's just turn over there because I'm not going to be able to quote it directly, Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> And, uh, and I will put enmity, verse 15, between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And coming forth to say that the, um, there is going to be one who will conquer sin. That will, come, that will come, this will come through the seed of the woman. And we see all throughout the, the, uh, the Old Testament, the coming Messiah promised through the line of David through the house of Judah, through the line of David, all the way down through. And guess what we see? We see that come to pass. 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was one who had studied the scriptures, right? He was a student of Gamaliel, um, very knowledgeable, right? We, uh, Brother Austin, in his prayer this, uh, this evening here, talked about a head knowledge. And there are many out there that have a head knowledge of what they think Christianity is. And then there's a spirit-led knowledge of what, what, the, uh, what, what it means to be a Christian. And the world thinks it knows best, uh, but ultimately we know that the Lord knows best. And here we see that Paul was resisting that truth, that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, foretold throughout Scripture. Jesus in Acts chapter 9 tells Saul that it is difficult to resist this truth, right? It's there, but he's resisting it. The world around us, uh, as testified through Paul's writings in the book of Romans chapter 1, is aware of the creation. They're aware that there is a God. They just resist it and deny it to their own hurt. Now, to what level they resist and can they be redeemed from that resisting? Um, we don't know for sure personally. I think so in, in, in many instances. There are, and we'll touch on that just a little bit here, but um, as far as we know, as long as somebody is on this earth has breath in their lungs, it is possible for them to be born again and saved. Uh, whether they've hardened their heart enough that, that God is going to give them over, uh, I don't know that. I don't think any of us can know that here for certain. We can't write off the worst politician that you can think of today or the worst actor. I mean, I, terrible as far as man, not, not acting ability, but um, <laughs> there are some terrible actors out there, but... Yes. Um, but you know, the vilest person that you can think of, God loves that person. And Jesus Christ died to forgive their sins. And as far as we know, they have the chance to trust on him, to, to put their faith on him. So we can't write anybody off out there. We can't write our town off, right? We all know the, the pension of Corvallis and the people that live here generally. And we can say generally, Corvallis is a very lost place. Well, yes, it is. But God still loves Corvallis. God still loves the people here. He is still calling out to them. And as far as we know, like I said, as long as they have breath in their lungs, there's, a, there's an opportunity, as far as we know, for them to come to the Lord and trust in him for salvation. So Jesus tells um, Saul in Acts 9 that it's difficult to resist this truth of Jesus Christ and who he is and says, it is hard for thee to kick against the bricks. You're resisting this. It's hard. It hurts. You know what the truth is. And Paul writes that his prior character of being a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious was done ignorantly in unbelief. Was he trying to excuse his prior behavior is a question. I think not at all. I think if you understand the Apostle Paul in all of his writings, and you, you look at him here in this conjunction that separates the three uh, sinful actions that he was involved in, in his, prior to his conversion, and then you get to the conjunction, but I obtained mercy. There was a transition point in his life. And we read through that yet last time in Acts chapter 9. We won't go back there again. <clears throat> but he details his conversion there. And so was he trying to excuse his prior behavior? No. 
I think what he's trying to point out here, and it'll become apparent, uh, we've already read through the verse here later on in verse 15, um, but he's pointing out, you know, even me, one who was a vile blasphemer, a vile persecutor of Christians, of the Lord himself, of his body, right? The, the body of Christ is the church, persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even me is somebody that can be saved and who was saved and can go on to live for the Lord. And as far as we know, that's, that's what the Lord wants for each of us here, each of us in this town, each of us in our state, our country, and the rest of the world, is to come to him in faith, trusting in him for salvation, and then turning away from that old sinful life that we see here. He's not, he's not glorifying his, his, uh, his days as Saul of Tarsus. He's not saying, well, yeah, back in the day when I was a blasphemer and I was a persecutor, well, those are the days. No, no. No, if anything, there's shame there. There's open shame. And I think each of us, as we draw closer to the Lord and draw away from our old life, can look back, not fondly, but regretfully, for the wasted time that we didn't have in service to the Lord. I mean, I told you guys, I, am, I was almost 29 years old before I was saved. So in these instances here, I'm, I'm now, oh, where are we at now? 14 years I'm 14 years old today, or this this year. Um, only 14 years to serve the Lord instead of 30 or, four, or, or closer to 35 or so, potentially. But you know, that's not something to necessarily dwell on and say, oh no, I've wasted all this time. Look forward to today and what you can do today and what you can do tomorrow and focus on that. Looking backwards... If you've ever tried to do it, I know my kids try to do it on the street, walking down the sidewalk. They're like, look at me, Daddy, I can walk backwards. And I'm just waiting for it. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't think any of them have fallen down yet. Or if they, ha if they do, they're, they're made out of rubber, so they bounce right back. Um, so remember, this is Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy of his past failings and contrasting that with his life in Christ. In no way is Paul excusing his actions. And later in verse 15, he says, Sinners, of whom I am chief. What he's doing here is taking responsibility and ownership for his sin in his past life. Now, I want to tell a little story about myself of uh, things that happened this week. Not necessarily a sinful action, but as far as taking ownership and responsibility. It's something that I talk to my kids about a lot. Whenever you catch them doing something wrong, and you know they did something wrong. You caught them red-handed completely. I won't embarrass any of them because plausible deniability. When you have more than one kid, it could be one or the other. So no names, no nothing like that. But uh, caught one of them doing something wrong, what they shouldn't have been doing, and asked them, what were you doing? And we've been around and around on this. This is not a necessarily a, a perfect kid answer every time, right? There's deniability, deny, deny, deny. This time it didn't happen though. It was immediate, I did this, and I wasn't supposed to. And in that moment, that's, that's praiseworthy of, of coming outright and, and, and confessing what you've done wrong and getting it right, right then. Now there, was, there were punishment in, involved for that, and rightly so, but that's, that's a praiseworthy instance. 
the child that, that sees, recognizes that you've done something wrong and you do, and you do the right thing. So in, in those terms, um, I myself can't uh, teach something that I'm not also willing to walk. So this, this Monday, I get up early and I'm, I'm logged into my computer for work and I get an email contact from an engineer of in India and he's like, I think there's a problem in the circuit you designed. I'm like, oh no. It's still really early though. So I'm pulling it up and I'm looking, I'm like, looking, 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 oh, yeah, there is. So within, within about 15 minutes of hearing from this engineer, I get on the phone and I talk to the other engineer who's leading the project who's over in the United Kingdom. I talk with him a little bit and explain what's going on there, apologize, I think I've messed up. Here's what I think has to happen, this and this and this, and I'm gonna need these resources here. So instead of sitting back and, oh no, let's see if I can sweep this under the rug and somebody won't find out. Well, they're gonna find out if you did something wrong. Well, praise the Lord, we get around to yesterday afternoon and it all comes out to be nothing. It was an error in settings, and, um, but I was still not bragging or anything, but you know, pointing out doing the right thing when, when it is. When you know there's an issue, confess it, bring it up, try to make it right, right then. Don't go around sweeping it under the rug. There's a lot of dirt under rugs. So yeah, just that, just some personal advice there. Yeah, nice little story. The ignorance of unbelief of Paul were not such excuses for what he did. They would wholly free him from blame, nor did he regard them as such. What he did was uh, was with a violent and wicked spirit. But there were mitigating circumstances as well. They served to modify his guilt and were among the reasons why God had mercy on him. What is said here, therefore, accords with what the Savior said in his prayer for his murderers. So if you look at Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been uh, convicted in a sham trial, brought out, made to carry his cross, too weak to do it. Eventually, it climbs to the hill. He's nailed to the cross, placed between two, uh, two others, two other malefactors here. Verse 33, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So he's asking forgiveness, God to forgive those who are crucifying him right now. Murdering, killing the Son of God. Guilty of no crime. And in that, they're guilty in doing this. And what God or what what Jesus is asking is forgiveness for those that are doing him wrong right now, that are sinning against him. Now it is undoubtedly true that the persons who sin ignorantly and who regard themselves as right in what they do are, are much more likely to obtain mercy than those who do wrong designedly. So you're determined to do wrong, you know it's wrong, you're all in on this doing doing this evil act versus those who are ignorant in their actions. So did they know exactly what they were doing? Probably not. In the, in the grand scheme of things, the Lord knew what would happen and it was part of his plan. To, to give up his own life 
Now again, they didn't take it from him, as we know in Scripture. He gave up his own life willingly. Now a question from a difficult verse uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 6 have some pretty difficult passages that often uh, get people turned around and get you to get some wrong doctrines out of these, these verses here. The question being now, what if sin is committed willingly or willfully? Verse 26 reads, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So this verse is often twisted around to say that, you know, if you were saved once and you turn away from Christianity, then you lost your salvation, you can't get it back. There's no more sin for, there's no more sacrifice left for sin. Well, the question is here, what is it really saying? So is it, is it saying that? So willfully, this word has the idea of meaning voluntarily with all soundness of mind and understanding, the opposite of ignorantly. So now we're looking at and contrasting what Paul had written in here, uh, 1 Timothy verse 13, that he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now we're talking about somebody voluntarily doing something in the right mind, choosing to do this action. Receive the knowledge of the truth. Well, what truth are we talking about here? Is this saying that somebody is saved? No. Receiving knowledge, again, we're talking about knowledge, understanding of who is, what is the gospel, most likely in this context, who is Jesus Christ, having received that knowledge, I'll, get, I'll come back to this in a minute because I have. Uh, but what, what truth are we talking about here? Well, I, I believe the, the truth that Jesus is a sacrificial, substitutionary, propitiatory. Uh, his death on the cross and resurrection is the only way of salvation. So this phrase doesn't imply somebody is saved in this case. It's receiving the knowledge of how to be saved. Now, there is no more sacrifice for sin. So after receiving that full understanding of what, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you still reject Christ and say, I want to do it another way. Well, look at me. I got some good things over here. I, I attend and donate to the right political parties or the right causes and the rest of these things. I want to do it another way. I want some other sacrifice. I'm sorry, there isn't one. There is no other sacrifice that you can have more than what Jesus Christ has already done for you. <coughs> and again, this verse is often used as a proof text for people that say you can lose your salvation. It's too bad that it doesn't say that. We're not talking about salvation necessarily in here. Understanding of what salvation is and saying, I want something different. Uh, so there are implications of a hardened heart. Well, maybe somebody's heart is hardened to the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that maybe there's something going on there uh, for somebody who willfully re re rejects this truth. Will God harden your heart at this point? I'm not sure. That's God's prerogative at this point. Have you hardened your heart to the truth of the Word of God? In this case, I believe so, if you were to reject Jesus Christ. Now, another example of willful, ig willful ignorance as opposed to ignorance in unbelief is in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you would turn over there. 
Second Peter chapter three. Knowing this first that there in verse three, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that what then was being overflowed with water perished so people this time are saying everything's it's it's just always been like this and they neglect the signs of the flood in the world around them and uh it's it's funny if any of you have seen any of kent hoven's things it's one of the lines that i remember specifically so this is an example of being the willing ignorance of noah's flood kent hoven calls it dumb on purpose willingly ignorant and evidence of the flood is all around us in this broken and fallen world has anybody here ever been to the grand canyon anybody ever hiked down into the grand canyon i haven't hiked down i've ridden a mule down part way um but if you've ever been to the grand canyon what you will see is is probably the world's biggest in my opinion the world's biggest evidence of the flood that rapid water movement carves canyons faster than you can believe. Now, has anybody ever heard of a little event around in this, this area that happened 41 years ago this month? Mount St. Helens. Anybody ever been there? We're close enough. There's no real excuse. Okay. So if you've ever seen there, there's more evidence that um, when the volcano erupted, it dammed up one of the lakes, and eventually, uh, a few weeks later, I think it was, that Man, that earth-made natural dam ruptured and water started pouring down. What did we see in this previously, uh, previously pristine forest land? Well, we saw stratification of rocks, which means sorting of rocks based on density. You're gonna have different layers. Has anybody ever played with one of those? It's got two pieces of glass, a little bit of liquid in between, and you shake it all up and, and it's got different layers. Uh, are different types of sand inside of it and it works itself out into layers. This we saw in our lifetimes right here in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And these are evidences of the flood. And here we see that people in Paul's time, in Peter's time here in this case, are willingly ignorant of this facts. And today people are still willingly ignorant, dumb on purpose, about the facts of the worldwide flood. That God's word is true, and, and, he, and he means what he says. So ignorance is not an excuse, but it's an aggravation to sin, especially when there's a means of knowledge. Right? You can't feign ignorance when you get pulled over by the police officer, and he walks up to you. Uh, I've heard stories of a particular police officer in this town who rides a motorcycle. He's got a big shiny boots on, big aviator mirror glasses on and parks his bike walks off I don't know I can hear spurs clinking when I think of this walks up to you gives you your ticket and um, and they, they I, I don't know I've never been pulled over for speeding um, but if you are pulled over for something 
they will ask you, do you know why I pulled you over? In my opinion, it's best to not say anything. But uh, they will eventually tell you. And you can say, officer, but I thought the speed limit was such and such. You're doing 55 and a 25. That's going to be a little hard. So, you know, ignorance, if you didn't know that the speed limit was a certain level, and you say, well, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was only 25 miles an hour. Is that going to fly? Right? So ignorance of the rule, ignorance of the law, is not a defense. These are not attended to when a persons are not uh, open to conviction and resist the fullest evidence, which was the case with Saul. Nor can unbelief be pleaded in such a man's favor who heard what Stephen had to say. Paul was president at the, the, the stoning of Stephen. And though he could not resist his wisdom, received not the truth spoken by him. Right? If you, you go back through and you read what Stephen had to write, or what Stephen had to say, it's recorded in, in Acts chapter 7. It's an amazing testimony and condemnation of the nation of Israel. You know, you have all the oracles of God. You've had this truth. You've been, you've, you've, are the chosen people that God's chosen to, to bring his scripture through, yet you've rejected him. There's a, there's a condemnation in that. Stephen, Stephen testifies of that thing. And it, it causes those, those few men that were there to be enraged, and they ended up killing him. And Saul of Tarsus was consenting unto his death. So he had had his, he was all in and charging forward for his religion. So religion, I don't know if I've said it recently, but religion is one of those things that, you, that people try to do, man tries to do in order to reach God. Right? I have my rites and my rituals, my, my prayers, my special dances, my special whatever, uh, in order to try to reach the divine. You know, the great thing, though, is that God is reaching to mankind. And his, his reach down to us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And religion has rules, uh, but God offers us peace that, that, no, that no religion can bring you. But Saul was charging forward in his religion. I'm right because, and he could list off a whole list of credentials that we've, we've talked through already. I'm right because I'm, I'm smart. I'm really religious. I'm sincere in my belief. Sincerity and belief, you can be sincerely wrong and, uh, and, and, and find yourself in hell one day. So sins spring from ignorance and are aggravated by unbelief. But this phrase describes the apostle's state and condition. He was a poor, blind, and ignorant bigot, an unbelieving creature, and so an object of mercy, pity, and compassion of the Lord. He did it in, in unbelief. He was sincere, but again, sincerely wrong. And the Lord still had mercy on him. And we read verse 13, who was before blasphemer and persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So consider this passage in this view. The apostle had just been showing how great a sinner he had formerly been. 
His criminality had been so great that it went near to shutting him out from mercy altogether. If he had continued down this path and he had died, he was going to be locked out of eternal life for all eternity. He was going to spend his days in his eternity, I should, eternity, I should say, in the lake of fire. Had he maliciously persecuted and blasphemed Christ, knowing him to be the Messiah, his had been the unpardonable sin. So was Paul doing this maliciously in full knowledge that he was, he was, he was intentionally knowing who Jesus Christ was completely and intentionally persecuting Christians? I believe not. I believe he was being convicted. He was being drawn. He was being shown through the testimony of Stephen and probably those others that he had persecuted that were following after, uh, after Christ. Uh, their example of not recanting, not repenting of their faith, willingly going to their deaths to defend what they believed in Christianity. He was having that testimony of each of the persons that he had persecuted. And his lot of it, uh, but he had not got to that length. He was saved from that gulf and obtained mercy because sinning ignorantly and in unbelief, in doing this, he was not beyond the range of mercy. First Corinthians chapter 2. There's a couple questions out of your book coming up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So in your books you have a question number four. Question number four reads, What does this verse say about an unbeliever's perception of spiritual truth? pretty basic answer here, but that the unbeliever cannot understand and appropriates uh, a spiritual truth and therefore calls it foolish, right? The things of God, uh, the foolishness of preaching is what the world would say that we're doing here tonight and that others that go out and stand on a, a street corner and proclaim Christ or those uh, that witness to a friend a form of preaching. You know, preaching the gospel can be done in front of a pulpit. pulpit. It can be done on a street corner. It can be done, I think, okay. It's better if it's one-on-one, -on -one, but on a computer between two people chatting. Uh, it can be done, and especially one-on-one, -on -one, in a one-on-one -on -one witness, preaching the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the only way and truth, the only way to God. So question number five. So were you ignorant, were you an ignorant or religious unbeliever before you were saved? No. Sister Lynn. Okay. Okay. That's an, that's okay. Interesting. I think we can all say that to a degree. I think we can all agree on the, the ignorant part of it. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. We were ignorant to the truth of God before we were saved. Religious, I'm going to say yes. Interesting reasoning, though. Being religious in this context is more than just following after a man-made religion. Like if you're religiously going to church and checking off the, the box and paying the tithe and whatever else, I've got my 
my punch card of how many how many Sundays I've been to church. Uh, if you're doing it that way, yes, that's religion. Religion can be also the religion of you know self righteousness. Well, I'm I'm good enough. It doesn't matter if it's uh, you're focused on yourself. And then again, that that root of all that that wickedness is pride, the religion of pride. So yeah, I would say for me personally, yes. Was I a religious unbeliever? Oh, yes, I was in my pride. It's a hard thing to swallow. It's a hard thing to suppress, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord keeps working on me. And uh, it, it's, it's hard, you know, in, in to suppress that prideful feelings, even in dealing with the situation that I described at work earlier. Um, I could have handled things very badly in, in degrading the engineer who found this bug when it wasn't really a bug. But I spent the time and took the time to encourage him for doing a good job, too. You're out there trying to find these bugs. You found what you thought was one. It turned out not to be one. And yeah, I lost a little bit of sleep out over it. But I thanked them for it. You know, encourage somebody for doing a good job, for finding things. Be an encouragement to others. And question number six, how did you respond when you came to the understanding that the gospel was the truth? So for me, so here, when, how did you respond when you came to the understanding that the gospel was the truth? How did I respond? I believed the first time. Now, that's not saying, this is an interesting point though. Uh, we have spent some Christmas caroling times over the Howards. Many of you have met them. And during Christmas time, they have a little sing-along that they all get together, and, and Tim get, sits down and plays piano, and, and uh, it's, it's a good fun time. And we were there one year, and I think I was talking with Tim's mom, and she was asking me about my testimony and salvation. I was telling her my story. And I, well, this is what I told her. You know, I, the first time I heard the gospel, and when I say here, the first time I understood the gospel, I believed it. Had I heard the words of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again? Yeah, I heard that many times. Did I really hear it? In any of those other times, I don't, I don't think I did. You know, if I really heard it, and it really, it, it really sank in with me, who I was, who I was at that time, it didn't register with me at that time. But when the Lord was drawing, and when the gospel was was presented to me, I heard it, and I believed it. And that's when I understood it. So think, think of some of the unbelievers you know, and we all know somebody, or many somebodies out there. Some of them live their lives in virtual ignorance that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God. They don't recognize this, they're ignorant of it. That's not to say that they're dumb. Ignorance is just not knowing, not having that knowledge. That he's the only one in whom we may have eternal life. Ignorance is one reason why they see no need for him. Well, I don't know who this guy is. He says he's the son of God. I don't know who that is. That, why do I need to be saved? I don't, I'm a good person, right? How many times have we heard that? I'm, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or, no, I'm good. And then they, they close the door on you. Um, but no, ignorance is one reason why they see no need for him. 
Even some people who are hostile toward Christ and Christianity are devoid of their need for Christ and his salvation. They're just angry. They don't know why. They're just angry because, because they're angry. Now, maybe they understand, and maybe they understand what they're working against. But these people, uh, they think that they're right in trying to actively stop believers and the work of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, recalling his past actions, was one of them. Acts 26.9 reads, I verily thought with, with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of, the, of Jesus of Nazareth. It's like this guy out here who's claiming he's the Messiah, who everybody's following after as if he's the Son of God. Uh, no, that's not it. We're going we're gonna to try to suppress this. So he, he was out there in unbelief actively suppressing Christianity. Now, it's not an excuse for his acts of, acts of aggression and persecution. Rather, it's a statement of sad reality. Look at Paul. He thought he was serving God by trying to stamp out Christianity when, in fact, he was fighting against God himself. Question number seven. What are some present-day examples of religious groups that are fervent they, 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 they know what's right and they, they're, they're convicted of it. What are, some, what are some religious groups out there that are fervent in their religion but are opposed to the God of the Bible and his son Jesus Christ? Anybody have any names out there? There's some pretty obvious ones. Islam. Mormons. Christian cults. Who would add to that? I'll add Buddhists and Hindus. Buddhism being a subset of Hinduism. Uh, the obvious Satanists is, is one of the answers that was given here. But more subtly than Satanists, I would, believe, I, I would say, are the more socially acceptable atheists and humanists of today, uh, which is more or less what Satanism is. I believe it's the basic tenet of there is do as, do as thou wilt. Uh, do what you want to do. And that's atheism in a, in a nutshell. That's humanism in a nutshell. And of course, the Christian cults, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and everyone else who distorts the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul's description of himself before that we see here in the beginning of the verse are vivid pictures of a proud and arrogant man. They set the stage for a dramatic after picture, which we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time here tonight. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, this testimony of the life of Paul here summarized in this verse of before being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But Lord, you having mercy on him saved him, Lord, and used him greatly uh, as, as, a, as a picture now of the life of the, that we now can have, Lord, being in our own ways, in our own time, blasphemers, persecutors, and injurious to, to you, Lord, in our actions prior to salvation, but now having you, you having mercy on us and us having faith on your son, Jesus Christ, for those that have called out to him for salvation, now have the after, now have a reason to live for you. Lord, help us to draw closer to you, to serve you better each day until you, t uh, until you come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.